faithful followers of God take the what? The long view. So we talked about last week. Faithful followers of God take the long view. Exodus 5 was where we were last week. If you weren't here with us, um, we saw Moses begin his ministry. God gave him a call. He goes to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. That goes very badly. Pharaoh says, get back to your burdens. Makes life hard on the Israelites. The Israelites' foremen go and make an appeal to Pharaoh. That doesn't go well. In fact, he made it even harder on them, taking away the straw for their bricks. And as such, we hear the foreman coming out from a meeting with Pharaoh, and they say this to Moses, you have made a stink in front of Pharaoh. The Lord judge you for this, Moses and Aaron. It was a bad day. Moses went into the presence of the Lord, and Moses said some hard things to God. Things like, none of the promises that you have made have come true at all. In fact, what Moses is saying is what you have probably said, what I have said, is, God, what in the world are you doing? Ever been there? Hmm. Judging by the number of emails that I received from many of you, there's a lot of us who've been there. I read some unbelievably gut-wrenching stories of the challenge of what it means to take the long view. And today what I want to do is to take some next steps in that regard. I, I want to add to what we talked about last week. We're wrapping up this little mini-series about what it means for God to have heard Israel. The title of this mini-series was The God Who Hears. Uh, Next week we'll jump into a short little series preparing us and leading us through Advent. And then as well, we'll have a great time of worship on December 9th as our worship arts ministry leads us in a feast of wonderful music and gospel-centered worship. Then we'll come back to Exodus in the first of the year. So we're kind of wrapping things up today. Exodus 6 is what I think is just the next step in what we saw last week. It's kind of a strange text. If you look at it, we, we read for our scriptures the first 13 verses. But if you were to look ahead, you'd also see that Exodus 6 contains a genealogy. So it's a great text, but the what's there in terms of the order is a, a bit fragmented. And then it ends with a summary or a conclusion in verses 26 through 30. So we have this promise of God's deliverance, we have this genealogy, and then we have a summary. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that Moses is wrapping things up in preparation for the ten plagues, the moment when God and Pharaoh are going to collide, and he's establishing some important things that need to be reinforced or remembered. In particular, last week we saw the challenge was to take the long view to not look just at the individual and temporary circumstances of our life, but to really look beyond them. And I know that some of you had this thought. You know, Mark, I, I want to take the long view. I know I need to take the long view, but you don't understand what my past has been like. You don't understand how disappointed I've been. You don't understand how how burnt I've been. You don't understand about the church situation that we left. So the idea of taking a long view is risky and it's challenging. And so today I want to add something to that statement. Faithful followers take the long view and I'll add something to that sentence at the end. So today what we're doing is we're taking some next steps and 
How do we take this long view? Our text today mingles people and promises and pain. And that's our lives, isn't it? It's a mingling of people, promises, and pain. So let's look at each of those and then draw some conclusions. In the first place, I want to start by going to the end, to this genealogy, and explain to you why this is here. Seems kind of odd if you look at verses 14 to 27, or 25 rather, that there is a genealogy here. It almost feels like it's like the credits of the movie are in the middle of the movie, right? You put the credits at the end. Or, you know, like when those commercials come on television for a prescription drug, and some of you may be writing those disclaimers at the end. You do a really good job, but it just seems kind of odd, isn't it, that after someone has told you to buy this medication, they tell you, and oh, by the way, this medication has been known to create a third eye in laboratory la- rats. You know, right? <laughs> right? So all these disclaimers at the end, right? That's what a genealogy feels like. It's like, why, why is this here? Well, you need to know, because a genealogy is not like the disclaimer on a medication commercial, nor is it like the credits at the end of a movie. Genealogies in the Bible have a point. They have, a, they, they have a message they preach. For instance, Matthew's genealogy, um, or Jesus' genealogy, in the book of Matthew, rather, is designed to show you that Jesus really is the Christ. He's the anointed one, which is why it begins in Matthew 1.1 of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So genealogies have a message to them. So without going into all of the names and um, trying to figure out how to pronounce all of them, let me just give you five conclusions or five messages that you need to know uh, from uh, Exodus 6 in regards to this genealogy. What does this genealogy do? Well, first what it does is it connects Moses and Aaron with the greater story of God's people through Israel or through Jacob. It begins with Reuben and Simeon who are not even relatives directly to Moses and Aaron. They're from the house of Levi. But it begins with this Reuben and Simeon um, genealogy piece in order to show you that this is part of the bigger picture story of what God is doing in Israel. Secondly, interestingly, the, the genealogy ends with Aaron's grandson causing the trajectory of the genealogy to land into the time of Judges. So there's a, a broad sweep that Moses has in mind when he records this genealogy. Third, it highlights this genealogy, the priesthood of Aaron. It shows him as a part of the house of Levi. This will be important as Aaron becomes the first high priest. In fact, uh, the Aaronic priesthood is a very significant theme in the book of Exodus. We'll see that um, sometime next year. Fourth, it gives some background to a man named Korah. Is that name familiar to you? Later on in the Exodus story, later on in the um, story of the wilderness wanderings, he leads a revolt and says, look, Moses and Aaron, they're leaders, but... I." I'm, I got a lineage too. Can God speak through me? And Moses and Aaron are like, well, let's see. How about if you and your family stand over here, and we'll all stand over here, and we'll see what God does. And the earth opens up and swallows them. The earth closes up and, you know, pretty much settled the point, right? Made the point. Settled the case, right? Be kind of, you know, all the detractors got swallowed by the earth, right? Now that's a congregational meeting right there, right? So, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Verse 5, or number 5 rather, it shows us that Moses was from a priestly family. 
something that will be really important later as he mediates the law of God. He comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got sinful people down below him. He's got a holy God above him. He's got the Ten Commandments in his hand. He, he, he becomes the sort of prefigurement of Christ as the mediator. He serves in this priestly way. So all of that to say the genealogy is essentially a validation of the ministry of Moses and Aaron. And additionally, it is a personalization of the work of God. So it validates Moses and Aaron, but it also helps us to see that, that God's work involved specific people. In fact, skip ahead to verses 26 through 26 to 27. Notice what it says. This is a summary. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. Hear the tense, the tone, the, 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 the sort of the leaning of the passage is Moses is indicating here the validation of his and Aaron's ministry. It also shows us the personal side of what God is going to do. He's not working just in a generic sense. He's actually working through very specific people. There are specific people in the line of Israel or Jacob that now have resulted in Moses and Aaron being on the earth. So God is at work, but very specifically, he's at work through these two men. This is important. It's important to note that every name has a story. I mean, people... 4,000 people here this morning, and every single one of us have a story. We have issues, we have challenges, we've got pains in the past. And when you read Exodus, you read it not, we don't read it just as the collective people of God, we read it as individual people of God, that God's working out this story through people like Moses and people like Aaron and people like you, people like me. So God's plan isn't theoretical. It involves real people, and when those plans become difficult, people's lives become difficult. Your life becomes difficult. So that's the people issue. Secondly here, here's the promise piece. So remember, the text mingles people, promises, and pain. So look at verses 1 to 8. Remember that Moses has just voiced his frustration to God. You have not kept your promises at all. That's what he says. And then God speaks to Moses. Verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. By the way, when we, when we go through this text, and I hope you can see in your Bible or in the manuscript, read this and listen for things that are repeated. When the Bible repeats something, it's a point of emphasis that we need to take note of. So just see if, if you can hear what's repeated and what's really going on in this text. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What would you hear? 
I, 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 18 times. 18 times the Lord said, I, 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 I. Why does he do that? Because he is rooting his promises in the very essence of who and what he is. He is saying, in effect, to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I'm telling you, Moses, I'm going to do this. I'm the Lord. I'm going to keep my promises. I, I told you I'm going to do this. I, 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 I. When God does this, it is glorious. When you do it, it's weird. Seriously, you use I 18 times in one sentence in a minute, people are like, dude, you got some serious ego issues, right? You ever been around somebody like that? I, 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 or, I think worse, someone who talks in third person. You ever been around someone like that? They refer to themselves when talking to you about themselves. For instance, my name's Mark. If I'm talking to you, I'm like, so Mark would like to go to McDonald's for lunch. You're like, who are you talking to? You? Are you the Mark? Yeah. Mark would like some, uh, have a conversation with you. Okay, dude, like right here. You know what I mean? It's just like, you think it's, it's not helpful when you talk that way. In fact, if you talk that way, people are going to get you some help. That's the issue, right? So when God talks like this, it's really helpful. When we do, it's just really psychotic. Why does God do this? He does this because there's no one greater than he could swear by than himself. For God to say, I'm going to do this, this is incredibly hopeful. In fact, let's go back and let's unpack the beauty of what God promises here. It's an amazing list of both past and present and future promises. In verse 1, he tells Moses that God is the one who is going to take action. A, A promise to Moses that God gives here about what God is going to do. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Verses 3 and 4 God reminds Moses that the present promises are a continuation of what he has promised in the past. He says, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. This is the Hebrew name for God, El Shaddai. Which for some of you is a blast from your past. You're now thinking, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Right? Thank you, Amy Grant, for helping us know God. Right? So you got that. And you know what El Shaddai means? It means the God of refuge. It means the God of the mountain, the God you can run to. If you're ever like, I am out of here, you just want to run away? Well, you run to God. That's the idea. He's the God Almighty, and yet he revealed himself this way, but by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, the name that God had given to Moses, he says, I have not revealed myself. I've not made myself known to them. So he's rooting his promises in the past. Verse 5 tells us that God is very aware of the people's pain. He says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. So again, back to this mini-series title that we have, God has heard their cries, he's heard their groanings. So all of this is just to establish God's past promises and even his present understanding of what is going on. Then verse 6, we get into the future promises. And this stuff is glorious. He says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Notice, first of all, he's going to solve their problem. He's going to fix their pain. He's going to remove them from the burdens of the Egyptians. He then says, secondly, verse 6 here, And I will deliver you from slavery to them. So he's going to change their status from slaves to free people. And then he says, not only that I will deliver you from, from the burden of the slavery, not only from being slaves, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In other words, God's going to settle the score. 
Now, if you read this and you know what happens in the New Testament, you can't help but think of Christ. Because this is what happens when a person receives the Lord Jesus. Listen to me. If you're here today, you've never received Christ, you're still in sin, you've never received the forgiveness of your sins by receiving Jesus, this is what the Bible says happens to you when you do that. It means that God delivers you from the problem of indwelling sin. He delivers you from the guilt and judgment of the conviction that you feel because everything that you do, you know, is fundamentally wrong in the sight of a holy God. You've disobeyed the Ten Commandments. You've broken God's rules. You know it. You feel guilty inside. What do you do with that? That pushes you away from self-atonement and pushes you to the person and work of Christ. What happens is that when God receives you by you receiving Christ, He then removes the judgment of condemnation over you. He then also calls you His Son. He changes your identity in the same way that Israel's identity was changed. And then also He promises future judgment that He'll settle all the scores. This is what happens in the Gospel. This is what happens... And his promise to Israelites in the book of Exodus. Verse 7, he affirms his, his ownership of them. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In other words, you're my people. I'm going to be your God. There's the promise. And this sounds remarkably similar to the book of Revelation. Verse 8, they have a glorious future in front of them. I will bring you into the land. Verse 8, that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So this is, these are glorious promises rooted in the very character of a sovereign God. These promises should have been heard and received with a hallelujah. God is on our side. These promises should have caused Israel to have incredible hope and given them amazing boldness. But it didn't. So we move from people to promises. Third, we have the the problem of pain. Moses delivers this great news about God's promises. He's, He's going to deliver this news about what God is going to do. And Nearly everything I want you to know about this sermon today is all in verse 9, and it's really connected to two key words in the text. Look at verse 9. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their, here's the two words, broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, we knew about the harsh slavery. That that was all Exodus 5. This broken spirit, this is a new thing. This is a new explanation. Not only did they have the the harsh slavery connected with their life in Egypt, but now something new has been added. We knew about the 400 years of, of bondage. We knew about the bricks with no straw punishment. But now the text says that they didn't listen to Moses because something else had been added to their slavery. What was added to their slavery was a broken spirit. Some of you know exactly what that is. The Hebrew word... It's significant and it's loaded. The NIV renders this as, instead of broken spirit, the NIV translators call this discouragement. New American Standard says despondency. King James, anguish of spirit. Why is there so much diversity? Well, this makes sense if or when you're living in this. When you've got a broken spirit, there are so many layered emotions, it's hard to even know what to call it. Somebody says, how you doing? 
And you're like, yeah, not good. I mean, you don't have words to describe. Discouraged? That's not even close. Despondent? Uh, crushed? Yeah. He's describing here a condition of the soul where you're so weary, you're so discouraged that even though you hear the promises of God, even though you know that they are technically true, your experience in life has been so hard, so harsh, you've been so disappointed that when you hear people sing, I'm counting on God, there's a part of you that goes, yeah, but... You you hear... uh, The promises in the scriptures, you read your Bible, you're trying, but the reality is a huge gap between your belief and where you live every single day. Maybe you can think back in your life of a time when you had faith in God, you took his word as true, and it went very poorly. You may be here today, and the reality is you are if you're honest, deeply disappointed with how your life has turned out, and God has a lot to do with that. Remember at the beginning of my message, I said I wanted to add something to what I said last week, that followers of God take the long view. Well, it has to do with this broken spirit thing. The Hebrew word literally means, you know what it means? It's so beautiful. When I saw this, I was like, God, thank you. You know what it means? It means short. Short. It means that instead of taking the long view, you're taking the short view. It means a short fuse, a short um, vision, a short endurance, a, a, a short viewpoint, a short outlook. It means that you are not taking the long view. Short views result in broken spirits, and that's where some of you are today. It looks like this. It sounds like this. We put some handles on it. You, you saw some spiritual truth in the Bible. You attempted to live it out with a right heart, and it blew up in your face. And you're like, yeah, I'm not trying that again. Maybe it was a person in your life, in your past, who called themselves a Christian, and they, va- they acted in a very unchristian manner. Or maybe it was a church situation that was just toxic. And you might be here in what I've somewhat jokingly but seriously have called the church recovery program. Or maybe it was something that you've been praying for, something that is a good desire, and you've been praying for it for years, and it just isn't happening. You know what I love about this text, what I love about the Bible in general, is that it's honest, and it, 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 it shows us that at times life can be really painful and really tough. But the challenge is is that these circumstances can actually affect what happens in your soul when you hear the promises of God. And even though the promises of God are glorious and sweeping and magnificent, when you've been burned on the promises of God, when you've been burned by people, when you've been burned by the church, you want to have faith, you want to believe, but the reality is you have a broken spirit and you want to believe God's promises, but you know that sometimes, in fact a lot of times, it doesn't work out like you thought it was going to. And that's Israel. That's the people of God right there. 
They believed Moses, and we got what we got with that? We got bricks and no straw. Now you want us to believe again? That that's a risky step of faith. A couple more examples. You thought you found your soulmate, you thought marriage was in the picture, and now that whole relationship is gone, and today you have a broken spirit. You know what it's like to lose a job, and any time a rumor in the office comes down the pipeline, you get really, really fearful. You have a, a broken spirit. You prayed for a baby for years, and every single month, you and your spouse have to fight for joy. You have a broken spirit, and you have to do it all alone. You watched an adoption go completely south. And you live in the fear, the constant fear of that happening again. Your spouse cheated on you, and now any little thing creates all of this fear within you. You have a broken spirit. You prayed for a wayward child. God, would you help him to come home? And it's been 22 years that you've been praying that. So what do you do? Look at verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. See what he's doing? Moses is in the exact same place that the people of Israel are in. God says, I want you to believe me. I want you to take this message. He's like, God, this didn't even work with Israel. I think it's going to work with Pharaoh. Here's the problem. The problem is that the painful circumstances of life can tempt us to not believe in the promises of God. To throw up our hands, to become cynical, bitter, angry, become short. We refuse to believe the promises of God or we find it very hard to believe them. So, what do I want to add to what I said last week? Here's, here's what I want to add, and it's this. That faithful followers of God take the long view, here it is, by believing while broken. You know what God was asking them to do? He was asking them in the midst of their brokenness to still believe. He was asking them in the midst of all of their fear to still take the risk of saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe in you. He's asking them that in the midst of all of the harshness of their slavery and the brokenness that went along with that, for them to hear the promises of God, and even though it has not gone well, to have the courage to say, yes, that's true. I believe in you. I'm not going to let my circumstances of life inform my theology. I'm going to believe that you're going to keep your word sure. And I believe in you even though my life has not turned out like I thought it would. But they would not be the kind of people whose lives would be conditioned on their circumstance, but rather people who would believe that God was going to make good on his word. Over and over, look, this is, the, this is a major theme throughout Exodus. Over and over, you're going to see Israel struggle with this. They'll be at the brink of the Red Sea, Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh behind them. And they'll say to Moses, you brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? Moses, so kind and patient. If I was Moses, I was like, yeah, I'm going to kill you right now with my own hands. That's what I'm going to do. And Moses is 
standing there and he says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, shh. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stop striving and complaining. Stop looking back and front and panicking. Instead, just be still and know that God is God. And in a moment, God's going to blow their minds and part the Red Sea and take them through and then judge Pharaoh. They're only moments away from the greatest deliverance of their lives. And they're there thinking Moses brought them out to kill them. And when I read Exodus, I see myself. And you've got to see yourself there too. The fact of the matter is there is a challenge that we all have to fight through and it is that we have to believe while broken look at verse 13 after moses said i'm a man of uncircumcised lips god says this but the lord spoke to moses and aaron and gave them a charge that's what i want to do to you today god helping me i'm going to give you a charge Gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He gave them a charge. So let me charge you with a few things about how to believe while you're still broken. First, If you find yourself with a broken and crushed spirit today and you hear the promises of God and God is calling you to believe, the first thing you need to do, and they're all three, start with the word look. The first is to be able to look back. By this I mean that you look back and see how faithful God has been in your life. Can you see that? Can you see the orchestration of so many things just in the moment that you thought that, that everything was going, to, was going south, like the whole bottom had dropped out, like everything was falling apart. God sustained you. He was true to His Word. You can see it in your own life. The older you get, the more you can see it because the more stories you've got. So we need you folks who are older to tell the stories of how God rescued you and helps those of us who are young are freaking out. How's this going to work? Well, don't worry about that. We walked uphill both ways to school. You know, things like that. (laughs) Don't give us little truisms. Tell us about what God's done in your life, how He has been faithful and true and sure. You look back on your own life. What's more, you look back in Scripture. The reason we have all these stories in the Bible is to be able to see how faithful God was. And for that matter, the place that you have to look back to is the moment when the Gospel became fully evident when Christ hung on the cross and died. It's it's that moment that we can see to what extent God would go in order to rescue His people. In that moment of the cross, we see the extent to which God would go to rescue you, to save you, and we also see the extent to which it looked as though everything had gone south, and yet God loves to redeem His people in moments when it seems as though everything has gone wrong. That's why if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you've never bent the knee, you've never repented of your sin, you never confessed faith in Christ, the first step in understanding what it means to deal with a broken spirit is to take your broken spirit to the one who heals broken spirits, and that is the Lord Jesus, because the real cause of the broken spirit that you have today is your alienation from God. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wanted to talk about the connection between the cross and present challenges in Romans chapter 8, he linked the cross of Christ to present day circumstances. Here's what he said. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And then he provides this argument. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's the gospel. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See it? God links, or Paul links rather, the work of God in the cross as the bedrock upon which future promises are built. So if you're here today and you're like, I got nothing, I want to bring you to the cross and remind you that at Calvary is where God was true to his word. And if you don't and can't believe any other promises, you have to come back to this essential promise, which is if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So we got to look back. Here's the second thing. And that is you need to look through. So Moses and Aaron needed to look through the Israelites and see the promises of God. The people of Israel needed to look through Pharaoh and behold the promises of God. This is a real problem. And that is that when something goes really badly, it becomes the thing that's right in front of us that we see. For some of you, it's a person in your past. And when you think of Christianity, when you think of the promises of God, when you think of um, God being faithful and true, you know that's true intellectually, but there's this person who clouds your vision of God. Could be a father, a mother, could be a somebody in church, could be a, a church scenario, could be a, a wayward son or daughter, a hard circumstances, could be a person or a thing. And the reality is, is that thing stands in the way of you beholding God. And here's the problem. You are letting that person or that thing have way too much power in your life. The reality is, is the Israelites, it's just little Pharaoh on the earth. The supreme God of the universe is about to blow their minds and just show Pharaoh what a little gnat he is in respect to God's power. You think your Egyptian gods are something? Watch this. I'll use every single one of them and turn them on you in order to display his glory and his majesty. Pharaoh was nothing. And yet the people of Israel, are all they can see is Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. And what we need to do is look through those people's circumstances and challenges and behold the beauty of the promises of God. I found this psalm this week, Psalm Psalm 143, so beautiful. Look, Listen how the psalmist prays through the people who are given in pain. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. And notice how he just gets so real. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. I mean, some of you resonate with that. My spirit, it faints within me, that crushed in spirit. And then he says this, my heart within me is appalled. I love that. Because my heart has been appalled before. People's actions, their attitudes, things they're doing, that that's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? 
We're going to do this. This is how we're going to do this. Are you kidding me? And it, it affects your vision, your view of God if you don't look through. I remember the days of old. Notice he looks back. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me to know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge, El Shaddai. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. You see what he's doing? He is appalled. His spirit is crushed, and yet he is looking through those circumstances and saying, God, I want you. And that's my charge to you. My charge to you is stop letting those circumstances, those people, I know it was painful, I know it was hard, but look at me, look at me. That thing, that circumstance, that person, it wasn't God. And you are allowing that to cloud the very fabric of the flight of your soul in worship to God. And it's time just to say, God, I will choose to bless you even though this thing, this person it's caused me great pain. Third, look back, look through, finally look up. I want to invite you to pray Psalm 143 today. I want you to make a, a conscious decision. For some of you, a, a, frankly, a bit of a scary decision to choose to trust the Lord again by talking to Him and telling Him, Lord, I want to believe there's no guarantee things are going to turn overnight but it means that this thing of 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 you struggling to believe the lord's promises you you may have woke up this morning thinking man i don't know if i can come to church and you came today and you came to church by faith today i'm really grateful that you did it may mean that it was hard for you to sing but you tried and it may mean that today just the next step for you is to pray the prayer of a father in mark chapter 9 When Jesus said, I can heal your daughter, it just takes belief. And the man said, I believe and help my unbelief. I love that. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we all live there, don't we? And my charge to you, College Park, today is for some of you to look back, to look through, and to look up. And for the confession of your faith to be, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. It means that you come to church in faith. It means that you sing in faith. It means that you read the Bible in faith. It means that you risk trusting Him again, even though you've been burned. It means you read the story of Exodus, you see the struggles that Israel has, and you see yourself and say, Lord, help me to believe. It means that you know mingling of people and promises and pain and that those the mingling of that can lead to brokenness but you refuse to stay in unbelief it means that you choose to believe even when broken that you take the long view how by believing even while you're still broken you bow your heads with me in prayer Before we dismiss and before we 
move away from this moment in God's Word, I just wanted to take a few moments at the conclusion today. And there are some of you today who I, I believe that the identification of a broken spirit, that's, that's what's happening in your soul. And I think that for some of you, one of the best things in the world for you to do would be to take some sort of action point today. I've asked Chuck to come, and he's playing a familiar invitation song. It is the song, Just As I Am. Remember this one? Without one plea. In a moment, I want to pray for those of you who today find yourself in a position of battling unbelief because of the pain of life. And today, the prayer coming from your lips would be, Lord, I believe, but help, help my unbelief. The step of standing in a moment for prayer isn't going to solve everything, but it could be the first of releasing this sort of burden to the Lord. So whether you're down here in the front section or up on the stadium, if an act of obedience for you like standing would work and help your soul, I want you to do that right now. And then I'm going to pray at the end. So if you'd say, Lord, I'm here broken and I need to believe, here I am standing, do that now. And I just want to close in prayer for you. I'm here. I'm broken. I have a crushed spirit and I'm asking you help my unbelief. Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters who have had difficulty and challenge in their life that by their standing today acknowledges that at times it's created a deafness of even hearing your promises, let alone a challenge in believing them. And I pray today that you would help them, like the man in Mark chapter 9, to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I pray that you'd pour out a fresh measure of your spirit upon them. Help them to choose to hope in you. Help them to choose to believe. Thank you, Lord, that for the step of just simply standing and saying, Lord, here I am, that it opens up a, an immeasurable amount of grace because you respond to the humble you're ready to pour out fresh help. And then, Father, for those who aren't standing today, who someday will face a day like today, that this might be a preparation moment, that when crushing moments come, that they will be able to learn to still choose to trust in you. So thank you for Exodus 6. Thank you for hard circumstances that awaken the heart. And we pray this all in the authoritative name the king who one day will set everything wrong right in jesus name we pray amen thank you be seated we'll have some folks up here at the front who would love to pray with you if there's something going on in your life want to pray at a deeper level they're here if you want to come at five today love to pray with you then too all right god bless you college park i love you thanks for coming today